From WFIU, on the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, this is Earth Eats. The recipe that we're making makes two small 12-ounce challahs. We found in our house that if the challah is too big, then the kids only eat challah for dinner. <laughs> so we like to make them small and serve only half. <laughs> this week on the show, we're celebrating five years with me, Kate Young, at the helm of Earth Eats. We're taking a look back at some favorite shows. One about making beer from fresh local hops, one about making challah with Muddy Fork Bakery, and we venture back to the days of Annie Corrigan as host with her story about a beloved persimmon tree. All that and more just ahead. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Veterinarian clinics in rural communities have been dramatically declining in numbers for decades. Rural veterinarians often get paid less than urban practitioners, take on more workload, and carry thousands of dollars in debt from medical school. Harvest Public Media's Excaret Nunez reports on why attracting veterinarians to rural areas remains a problem and what's being done to fix it. Come on, Thea! Come on, sweets! On a rainy Saturday morning, Dr. Serena Holt welcomes Thea, a German Shepherd mix, and her owner Becky, 9 a.m. on the dot at the Perry Veterinary Hospital in Perry, Oklahoma. Holt started working at the clinic straight out of veterinary school six years ago. She's a mixed animal practitioner, which means she works on both small animals like dogs and large animals like cattle. Hole is one of two doctors that works at the small town clinic, where the workdays get busy and she's constantly shifting gears. I mean, there have been days that I'm doing a euthanasia in one room and just like a standard appointment, whether that be vaccines with another dog, literally in another room, and then have cattle out back. I mean, there's days I'm, I feel like I'm just running in circles. On top of that work stress, Hole has more than $100,000 of veterinarian school debt. It's one of the factors that's contributed to the decline of rural vets in the U.S. since World War II. Dr. Daniel Grooms is the dean of Iowa State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. In 2019, he and two students surveyed clinics across Iowa to understand the shortage and found pay in rural clinics is a big problem. Typically, uh, rural practices uh, have lower salaries than practices that are located in uh, more populated areas. The average amount of debt veterinarians come out of medical school with is nearly $200,000, according to the American Veterinary Medical Association. Since 2010, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has offered a loan repayment program aimed at rural vets. Today, that program offers up to $75,000 to help veterinarians offset their loans if they spend three years in a rural clinic. But that's less than half of today's average loan debt for graduating veterinarians, which officials at the USDA acknowledge. It's being considered. Dr. Robert Smith oversees the repayment program and says there's talk of increasing the amount they give out. You know, we have the ability to consider that. But even if more money becomes available, earning the repayment isn't easy. Last year, 144 veterinarians applied, and just over half got the award. That's in part because the program only gives money to one veterinarian in a designated area of need. And Smith says the application process can also be intimidating. 
practitioners are not used to writing grants. And so we'd like to provide some kind of coaching or mentoring or to work with them on putting together a, a better application. But other programs are working at a more local level to relieve the debt load for rural veterinarians. Dr. Brad White is the director of Kansas State University's Beef Cattle Institute. He says a K-State program has helped rural practices attract and retain veterinarian grads. Over the past about 15 years of that program, we know that about 90% of those students are still in rural practice. The state-funded program will forgive up to $80,000 in student loan debt for veterinarians who stay in rural Kansas for several years. And White says that's important so that there are vets who can help livestock producers keep their animals healthy. He hopes other veterinary schools adopt similar programs to Kansas State's. All right, I'm going to take the cone off and I'm going to clean her ears a little bit. Back at the Perry Animal Hospital, Dr. Serena Holt says being a veterinarian is all she's ever wanted to do. I mean, I love the profession. I, I love what I do. Um, it just It's really pretty crazy to look at the, the debt load that it takes to get there. For now, she says she's committed to working in the rural clinic. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Excret Nunez. Earth Eats partners with Harvest Public Media to bring you reports on food and farming in the heartland. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. It's fundraising time here at WFIU. And we're also celebrating five years with yours truly as the host of Earth Eats. Now, I know some of you probably still miss Annie Corrigan. I can relate. I miss her, too. When I took over the show in 2017, I was nervous. Annie is a tough act to follow. And this week, we're taking a look back at a favorite story featuring persimmons. Here's Annie Corrigan, Earth Eats founder and former host. This story is from 2015. Louise Briggs has a beautiful patio behind her house. It's a tidy space except for a pair of Adirondack chairs that are stacked with 10-gallon plastic bins and the lids. She and I are sitting at a table in the early evening. Her dogs are roaming around the yard. We rotate to face the gigantic persimmon tree in the middle of the yard, like it's our entertainment for the evening. The footprint of the tree is surrounded by a net propped up with several six-foot poles. Louise sounds like a proud parent when she talks about her giving tree. (laughs) Doesn't it silent once it hits the net? The adorable sound is it hitting leaves as it goes down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, like a, um, uh, what is that? Pinball machine. My persimmon pinball machine. She smiles and points at fruit way at the top of the tree, like a strand of orange Christmas lights. Those fruit will fall soon enough. This is the first year she's enjoyed the simple pleasure of watching persimmons drop from the tree. Because all this tree used to mean to her was a lot of work. And that's where I come in. When the fruit started dropping this year, she was in the middle of a home improvement project. It was the week before Labor Day. And so when the persimmons came early and came fast, I was kind of behind the eight ball and I... And then you wrote me. So what were you thinking when you shot off that email to Earth Eats? What did you think was going to happen? I was hoping that the community, that you might be my link (laughs) to the community. And... um, 
when I heard your voicemail, I almost cried. Because <laughs> I really had decided that I didn't want to do it this year. I just wanted a year off. Let's back up. Louise and her husband Bob moved to southern Indiana in the winter of 2010. After renting for a bit, they found this house that was a bit small, but in the perfect location, and the price was right. And the realtor said to me, oh, and there's a persimmon tree in the backyard, too. I'm from Boston. (laughs) What do I know from persimmons, you know? So we just went about our business, went through the winter, and when it came towards spring, I decided I should start looking up persimmons, you know, and see what kind of tree this was. And so the distinctive thing about persimmon tree is that the bark is shaped like tiles, it said, you know, so the striations go up and down, but they also go sideways, kind of splitting it into little pieces. Springtime, I was out, you know, cleaning up the yard and stuff. I said, well, let me just look around and see which of these trees is the persimmon tree, because there were lots of trees in the yard. So I went from tree to tree. No, not that one. No, not that one. No, not that one. And I looked at the big one right in the middle of the yard, and I thought, surely not that one. So I walked over to the tree and looked at the bark, and it was totally perfect. It was picture perfect. looked just like the pictures in the book. That 60-footer. That fall, the persimmons came quickly. Uh, We knew we had to net them because over the course of a few weeks, my little dog became a a pudgy little dog, and I kept cutting back on his food thinking I'm feeding him too much. And then we realized, we looked out in the back, and when we put him out, he'd be out there eating persimmons, which are high calorie, and he was having a good time. She wasn't just going to throw away the fruit that fell into the net. She knew she had something special on her hands. So she spent a couple of hours every day in the fall collecting persimmons in those 10-gallon bins, removing the caps, and cleaning off the leaves. It was a chore. Um, On a rainy day uh, when the wind blows and a ton of persimmons fall, and I've got four bins of persimmons, and they're all covered with wet leaves, which means they're harder to clean and all that kind of stuff. Every couple of weeks, she would throw a perpetual persimmon pulping party where friends would help her process the fruit into two-cup bags. She then sold the pulp to friends and businesses around town. She gave all the proceeds to the nonprofit organization Kites Global. Last year's haul, by the numbers, almost 40 10-gallon bins of fruit harvested, processed into 110 two-cup portions. The thought of doing all that work again this year? No way. Hello. Anybody mind dogs? We love dogs. Okay, good. I have two little dogs. After I received Louise's plea for help, I put out the word, free persimmons to anyone willing to do the work. A handful of people showed up that first day. Lisa and Chris Ann came with buckets. Amy and Kate came in work clothes. Alice was on her bike. And Earth Eats intern Katie Griebel and I came with recording equipment and microphones. Louise gave us all a tutorial on the net. Push the fruit from the various parts of the net to the center. So just go under. Push it on over. Pull down two of the poles to reveal a hole in the net. Oh, it smells so good. Drop it down. Look at that. There they go. It's almost pudding. Then you get the next bunch. 
These persimmons are perfect, squishy and a dark orange. In the kitchen, we take turns pulling off the caps and rinsing the fruit. It's very, very sweet and delicious. And the dark ones are caramelized and perfect. These are awesome. Once they're cleaned, it's over to Louise's motorized food mill. So this is your high-tech lesson. Is that everything lined up? Now, I haven't done this in a year, so... The pulp oozes out one side, the seeds and the skin splurt out the other. I know, it's fabulous. It's beautiful. <laughs> that's even worse, yes. Do I really need to like push it hard or it's just gonna just keep, it, keep it moving? We all leave with some pulp to make pudding and bread and donut glaze. There's plenty more where this came from, Louise tells us. Every day for the next several weeks, someone from the community will come and take her persimmons away. Some will make beer. Someone wanted to convert a waffle recipe to include persimmons. We heard of a vegan pudding recipe. And Louise couldn't be happier. Back on the porch, I couldn't help but ask, Do you regret buying this house with this tree and the responsibility that comes with it? I won't say that I haven't had moments, <laughs> but no, I would miss it. I would really miss it. And then swish, swish, swish goes another persimmon pinball plummeting from the tree down to the net. Thanks to Louise Briggs for telling her story. Listen to it again in this week's podcast posted at eartheats.org. One of the things I love about that piece is that it's a story about community. Louise was facing a problem, too many persimmons, and a group of people, most of whom she did not know, showed up to help. In helping her, they walked away with something for themselves, persimmons. It reminds me of what happens during our fun drives here at WFIU. The community shows up for us with pledges of support, and they walk away with all of the great programming we provide every day. The news, with Morning Edition, All Things Considered, the WFIU News Team, the BBC, and all of the programs that go in-depth to help you understand the events of the day. Plus the great music and storytelling, arts and culture, and food shows like Earth Eats and The Splendid Table. It's the epitome of a win-win situation, And it's also part of what it means to live in a community. We help each other out. You can join the community by pledging your support at 800-662-3311 or by visiting wfiu.org slash donate. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats.
The first night of Rosh Hashanah is approaching, September 25th. Seems like a good time to hear from Eric Shedler of Muddy Fork Bakery about how they make their holiday bread. This story first aired in October of 2019. I'm Eric Shedler. I'm the owner and baker at Muddy Fork Bakery. Today we're going to make some challahs. Challah is a traditional, slightly sweet egg bread for the Jewish Sabbath. And typically it's eaten in the home on a Friday night or at any kind of uh, Jewish holiday at all, any holiday at all. (laughs) There's always challah, except Passover. It's usually done in a three or four strand braid and it's got egg wash on top and it looks shiny and and golden and pretty. I use filtered water to make the bread, so then I heat some in a kettle and mix it with the cold and see what we have here. That looks pretty good. Um, I'm actually gonna throw two eggs in the uh, in the bucket of warm water to warm them up. I didn't think to bring the <laughs> eggs to room temperature without cracking them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by throw, I think you mean gently set. <laughs> Okay, so to make the challah dough, we're going to do it in a few different steps. So we want to hydrate the yeast in the water. We have to crack a couple eggs and measure out. It's not going to be two full eggs to make the dough this size. And then we're going to mix the dry ingredients together, which is flour, sugar, and salt. So I'm going to start with the yeast so it'll have a moment to sit. This is going to take 128 grams of water. have to be to the to the gram within a couple grams is fine and more yeast than you would put in some other doughs because an enriched dough that has a significant amount of fat in the dough that inhibits the action of the yeast so you have to add a little more and it's also a really stiff dough and that also slows down the fermentation so this dough needs five grams of yeast and about half a tablespoon that's going to take a minute so while that's sitting i'm going to measure out flour sugar and salt for making challah, you, if you can, you want to use bread flour as opposed to all-purpose flour. A little bit stronger gluten structure in the bread flour is going to be helpful because that oil in the dough is going to counteract against the gluten development. And I recommend against using any kind of bleached flour. Bleaching, the reason for it is actually not to make the flour look white. <laughs> It's done as an as a artificial way of aging the flour because white flour changes as it ages and the gluten ponds are stronger once it's aged a little bit. Space is money, so it's cheaper to not have a bunch of warehouse space where your flour can age and oxidize. It's cheaper to artificially oxidize it by bleaching. All right, here's sugar. It's the closest thing I have to white sugar. And how much sugar is that? This is 32 grams of sugar. Professional bakers use percentages to measure their ingredients. So that system called Baker's Math, in that system, the total flour counts as 100%. So your recipe adds up to more than 100% because the flour is already 100. So um, the, the sugar in this recipe is 8%. So it's definitely noticeable amount of sugar. And if you, you can't use a lot more than that in yeasted bread without causing it to burn when you bake it and then we'll put some salt in eight grams which is a little bit less than two teaspoons all right i'm going to check the yeast 
It looks pretty dissolved, but I'm going to whisk it just to make sure that it's all hydrated before I start throwing a bunch of other ingredients on it. Okay, so we've got our uh, water and yeast dissolved and our dry ingredients measured out. So let's add the oil to the water and yeast. This dough has 30 grams of olive oil in it, uh, which as a percentage is 7.5%. All right, we've got two warm eggs that we stuck in a bucket of warm water. And we're going to weigh them out here. A large egg is usually 50 to 55 grams. Now this recipe calls for 85 grams of egg, so I'm going to scramble it and then add 85 grams to the dough. And we don't have to throw out the rest because the um, challah needs to be egg washed before baking, so we can just save the rest of that egg to brush on the outside. And we start mixing. And goes the dry into the wet. This is another one that's going to get tough to finish with the, the wooden spoon here because it's such a stiff, dry dough. Until you get your hands in there, you almost think, how can you even make that into dough? All right, getting my hand in there because I can only get so far with a spoon. I'm trying to pick up all the little bits that are stuck to the bowl before I get too far into the mixing. And then use my hands to knead and get everything evenly incorporated. And I'm pulling, each time I go around, I'm pulling a piece of dough from the edge of the bowl and pressing it down into the middle and spinning the bowl and repeating that process. I can tell I'm not done because there's darker yellow pieces of dough in there where the there's a little bit more egg in those spots. These are beautiful deep yellow yolked eggs from Schacht Farm. This one's a bit of a workout to mix. Okay, that looks pretty good. So we're setting our dough aside, covered. Uh, to start its fermentation process and we want to fold the dough every 30 to 60 minutes so if you have a kitchen timer it's a good way to not forget just set the timer for 30 minutes and every time it goes off just come by and fold your dough folding the dough occasionally while it's rising helps develop the gluten in the dough so every 30 minutes or so do this it's going to be less messy if you have a little bowl of water next to your dough and if you have one of these plastic bowl scrapers so we're going to uncover the dough stick our hands in the water and fold the dough so i'm going around the edge of the bowl pulling the dough up into the middle and i've gone once around it feels like it's getting some tension in it this particular dough feels like it could go just a little more than once around and you're helping build that tension in the dough so that it has more strength. A few folds and hours later, it's time to shape the loaves for their final proof, which is basically the last chance they have to rise a bit more before going into the oven. Now our challah dough has been sitting at least three hours. You can mix your dough and let it, let it go for a few hours, or you can move it into a fridge overnight and then braid the next day, or you can braid the bread and put the shaped breads in the fridge and then finish proofing them the next day and bake them the next day. So you kind of break up the process how you need to 
to make it work for your schedule. So this dough is ready to go. The recipe that we're making uh, makes two small 12 ounce challahs. We found in our house that if the challah is too big, then the kids only eat challah for dinner. <laughs> so we like to make them small and serve only half. <laughs> so we're gonna cut this into four pieces. I have a nice two strand braid that simplifies some of the work. You actually braid it like a four strand braid, but you only have to cut and roll two strands per loaf. So that's where we're gonna start. So we're gonna get a little bit of flour on the table. You don't want too much for any bread, but uh, challah is a pretty stiff dough. And if you get too much flour, it will just swim around and you won't get any traction. Right, there's the dough coming out. Gonna make some six ounce pieces. It doesn't have to be perfect, but the more even you get them, the more symmetrical you're likely to get your finished challahs. I'm just not even using flour because my dough is so dry and the table's dry and everything's dry today. So I'm going to flatten these pieces out. If you can, you cut them sort of rectangular so you start with an evenly shaped strand. So I'm going to roll it up and then roll it out. Oh, 16 to 24 inches long here. As long as we can get it because this strand is going to get folded in half to serve as two strands. You start the braid in the middle and then you work all four ends down one way. So this recipe makes two challahs. I'm just going to get all four strands rolled out before I start to work with any of them. Challah is also one of the stiffer things that you will ever make out of bread dough. A lot of your loaves are a lot more hydrated than a enriched dough. Challah is considered an enriched dough because it has some oil in it. I wanted to know why oil and not butter? It could be made with butter, but it's definitely traditional to use oil to make challah because if you keep kosher, which most people don't who eat challah, but if you do, you want to separate your dairy and your meat. If you put butter in your challah, then it would be a dairy food and you would have to not eat it with a meat meal. So people like to be able to eat challah with anything. I'm going to do my best to describe a braid with words. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I am going to make a plus sign with these two strands and I'm putting the horizontal one over the vertical one. And the point where they meet in the middle is going to be the top of the loaf. So the whole braid is gonna work down from that point in the middle. It's a two-step process and you keep repeating the two steps over and over again. So we're gonna take the vertical strand and we're gonna flip the ends with the one that is currently down passing to the left and the one that was up passing to the right. So we flip them over and then we're going to flip the horizontal pieces starting with the left and remember we're working down and then the right over the top of it. And then we're going to repeat, flip the vertical strands, the one that is Okay, down, so Eric gave it a good effort, left, but no matter how specific ones, and detailed he gets, these right. are not okay. radio flip friendly instructions. You'll need to go to our website for this one. I've got photos of Eric making the braid step by step. The photos and the audio work really well together. So check that out, eartheats.org. You don't want to, to braid a challah too tight. You want to let it be relaxed as you're braiding so that the strands just pop out more. If you pull everything tight, then it doesn't pop as much mm -hmm. after it rises. Okay, after you've braided your challahs, depending on the weather, you might need to spray just a little water on them as they're proofing. Because if the dough gets dried out on the surface, that can kind of prevent it from expanding 
loses its ability to stretch. So today is definitely dry. I'm getting them a little wet. I'm gonna cover them with plastic. We're checking on the halas, and it looks like they've risen by at least 50%, and so it's time to brush on the egg wash. So we're gonna take that part of an egg that we didn't use in the dough, and a pastry brush, and we're gonna brush it on the outside of the dough. And that is gonna give these halas a nice shine to them as they bake. So we're gonna bake the halas in our big brick oven which is seven and a half feet deep and five feet wide. And it's a little bit cool right now because we have a weekly heating and baking cycle and the oven just retains heat for the whole week. And we start when we're finished heating it on Friday night, it's about 670. And at this point on a Tuesday in the middle of the day, it's at 365, which is a little cool for challah, but we're gonna put it in the oven anyway. About 20 minutes later, we check on the loaves. When Eric pulled them out of the oven, they looked perfect. They were deep golden brown in color and had poofed out evenly throughout the braid. Unfortunately, bread needs to cool before you cut into it. Eager bakers have been known to ruin good loaves by ignoring this step. The bread is still cooking inside and you have to learn to walk away and let it cool or you can end up with a gummy mess in the middle. Ha, I can tell you though, is a soft, light bread, slightly sweet, with a tender golden finish. It's beautiful to look at and delicious to eat. This recipe lives with all the others on our website, eartheats.org. Eric Shedler is the co-owner and baker of Muddy Fork Bakery near Bloomington, Indiana. Find out more about Muddy Fork at eartheats.org. Stay connected. Subscribe to the Earth Eats Digest. It's a bi-weekly email with food stories, updates on the show, and recipes from the Earth Eats archive. Go to eartheats.org to sign up. WFIU is nonprofit public media. You can tell because of the high quality of what you hear each day. You can tell because of the stories and perspectives about our region and the world. And you can also tell because you're listening to a membership drive. Public media asks you directly to support this service that makes such a difference in your life. Think about all that you've heard on WFIU just in the past few months. That's what your gift supports. High-quality news, in-depth reporting, and stories and connections to Indiana and the world. Call now and become a sustainer with an ongoing contribution of $10, $15, $20 per month or more, whatever you can afford. And the next time you listen to WFIU and you hear something you really like, you'll know that you made it possible. If you haven't made that contribution, give now at wfiu.org slash donate or call 800-662-3311. From all of us at Earth Eats and at WFIU, 
thank you. Next up, a favorite story from 2018 about the time when Upland Brewing made a special beer as a fundraiser for Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. It's going to be a juicy, kind of hazy, East Coast-style IPA, which is very popular right now. He's talking about beer. Did you know beer could be juicy? Hazy, I can sort of picture, but juicy? That is a new one for me. I'm no beer connoisseur. I know almost nothing about beer. I mean, I'll enjoy a pint now and then, and I'm partial to craft beers, but my taste buds are not at all refined in this area. And as far as how beer is made, I'm pretty ignorant there too. I know fermentation is involved, and hops. But what are hops, really? A grain? I'm I'm not sure. But when my friends at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard told me they were partnering with Upland Brewing for a special 20th anniversary signature beer, I was intrigued. Most beers are made with dry hops. This is Matthew Batty, creative director with Upland Brewing. But these ones, wet hops, which means fresh off the vine. And it's a hazy IPA. And this one's going to be called Mother's Harvest because it's a partnership with Mother Hubbard's Cupboard in Bloomington. Because we have uh, a shared birthday. We were both... 20 years old, starting in 1998, and we're helping them with their gala in September, which should be a really fun event. I think we're going to do a hog roast and help them raise some money and also share this beer once it's brewed with them. Okay, I'm in. A cause I believe in, an unusual process, tell me more. They said I could go out to the hops farm for the harvest and then follow them back to the brew house for a lesson in beer making. I said yes to that. First thing I notice is that hop plants are referred to as binds. Yeah, that's B as in boy, not V as in Victor. The farm I visited is called Indy High Binds. It's up near Indianapolis, and the binds are indeed very high. Each plant climbs up a rope strung on a substantial trellising system. They reach up to 25 feet, maybe higher, row after row of these high binds loaded with hops cones. The binds themselves are not terribly leafy or lush. They're kind of thin, really. And the flowers are the part you harvest. They remind me of a small, loose, papery pine cone, and they're pale green. This is a first-year crop, so it's not as thick as our second-year crop. It is a perennial crop, um, so it comes back every year. Um, Assuming the health of the plant's good, it'll always make it through the winter and come back the next year. But you can harvest the first year? You know, if your plants are big enough, yes, you, you can. If your plants, you know, maybe struggle through the first year, you really might, might not want to, just to let them build up more root system, more reserves in the plant. But we, we've had good success getting good yields on our first crop, so um, we, we harvest them. We try to leave a good amount of plant at the bottom that'll grow up and bush out um, through the fall. That's Ryan Getham, one of the owners and growers at Indy High Binds. This is their fourth year growing hops in this field. To harvest them, one crew goes along the base of the binds and clips them the whole plant and the rope they're climbing on. They use a pair of handheld clippers. Then a couple of people climb up on a crude wooden structure, a tower, pulled by a tractor in between the binds. And then we have up in the tower, we cut the tops, and then someone down low guides it into the trailer as we cut the tops off and drop them in the trailer. And we pretty much try to load the trailer as full as we can and um, get as much as we can get really up to the machine, and then we'll run the machine. The day I was out there, they were just getting what Upland needed for their special harvest brew, and a crew from Upland was out there helping. It went pretty fast. 
belt, and they'll all fall onto that belt. So basically everything that gets stripped off the plant goes to a belt, and it all falls and goes down in front of this mesh belt. And what you'll see happen is all the leaves will stick to the mesh belt, all the cones will continue down. And then there's a bottom belt in there that collects all the cones, and it brings them up, and then dumps them over these dribble belts and the cones will go down to the bottom of the dribble belt. You'll be pretty amazed what comes out the, the other side. This was made in Germany in 1982 specifically for hops. Rachel is with the Upland crew and she's learning how to load the vines onto the machine. We're basically trying to find the end, push all the green stuff away, and then once it loads it in, it'll use the rope and the root or the vine to pull it up. And then they'll start to strip the like leaves and branches off of it. And it's mostly just like cooking it. It's hooking the vines to carry it into the top. And that's when Charlie, one of the brewers at Upland, told me what the beer would be like. It's going to be a juicy, kind of hazy, East Coast style IPA, which is very popular right now. What do you mean when you say juicy? Juice characteristics. It's not like a very effervescent, very high carb beer like you're used to drinking with a Pilsner or a lager. It's going to be, yeah, it kind of, it doesn't have pulp or anything like that, but just the mouthfeel of the beer is more like drinking orange juice versus a champagne or very light, high-carb beer. I still didn't know what he meant. I guess I'd just have to wait till I could taste the beer for myself. For now, I'll just focus on the hops. Those pretty pale green cones that are quickly filling up the mesh bin at the end of the final conveyor belt of the machine. It's a pretty cool morning, with patchy clouds shielding us from the August sun, and the aroma of hops is thick all around us. Wow, they smell great. Yeah, they do. Very piney. Very citrus and pine, like grapefruit and pine almost. And as we're standing over the final conveyor belt, picking out any stray leaves, I ask Ryan when the hops usually come up in the spring. Usually pretty early around here, so um, usually by the 1st of March we're starting to see them emerge. Um, and then we actually continually prune them to the ground. As they grow up, we prune them, they grow up, and we prune them. And that's so we can get our timing on the string right. We want them to start climbing at a certain point in the year. Oh. And we start early here because it gets warmer here. So we have to prune them back a couple times usually before we actually let them climb. So they maximize the daylight through the summer, and that'll help maximize the yield. Um, it'll help maximize the oils that they develop in the cone. Um, so timing's pretty critical in the spring. The machine's running mostly on its own at this point. The crew is pretty laid back, beers in hand, laughing, joking, guiding binds onto hooks, picking leaves off of belts. They'll be heading back to Bloomington with their fresh batch of hops in no time. After a quick break, we'll visit Upland's brew house in Bloomington for the next stage in the wet hopped brewing process. I showed up at the brew house on the west side of Bloomington at 9 a.m. the next morning. The brew house is back here. Zach Allgood was way ahead of me. I came in and got started about 6 o'clock this morning. Zach led me through the packaging room, then the cellar, and into the brewing room. It's a warehouse-type space with high ceilings filled with stainless steel tanks and machinery. 
there's a metal grate catwalk leading up to the tops of three of the tanks. Zach moves up and down those stairs, checking gauges, watching temperatures, pulling samples. He's got a beer stein style mug filled with hot tea that's never out of reach. There's uh, barley, wheat, some spelt malt. Those are the grains in this beer. When the grains come in contact with hot water, there's some enzymatic activity that basically turns the starches into simple sugars. Um, and then we take those sugars and that's what we're going to make the beer with. Zach was kind enough to walk yeah. me through the general steps of brewing. We have a three vessel brewing system with our mash tun, our boil kettle, and our whirlpool. This tank here, is our cold liquor tank. This one right next to it is our hot liquor tank. And so that's our brewing water. Um, the cold water is used to help cool the beer. After we get done in the whirlpool, we'll let it settle. We'll spin that beer around and basically we're letting centrifugal force help pull all the solids into the middle. The idea is just to get a really clean work. So when we're ready to start transferring into the fermenters, we'll come through this as a heat exchanger. And so we're chilling it as fast as possible. So it'll come in this side at about 200-ish degrees and it'll come out the other side about 20 degrees Celsius is what it'll come out today. Um, so at that point, it comes out into the cellar where it will go into our fermenters. We moved into the cellar room for the rest of the steps. Um, depending on the batch size, we'll go into different size fermenters. Um, so on the way to the fermenter, we will pitch yeast. We'll pitch it in line as it's going to the fermenter and then it'll, it'll start working. It'll start fermenting, and usually in seven to 10 days, fermentation will be pretty close to finished up. What this, about this wet hop type? Um, this one, probably five or six days, it'll be pretty close to finished up. They go pretty quickly. Um, after that, we'll send most of our beers, we'll go through our centrifuge to clarify it and uh, so we can start pulling beer from the center. This will be a New England style hazy beer, so it won't go through the centrifuge. We'll just, we'll go from the racking arm straight over into our bright tank. And then the bright beer tanks is where we carbonate the beer. So there's uh, large carbonation stones, similar to a fish tank aerator, that are in the side of there, and we'll push CO2 into the beer. So that's your basic process for making beer. But this beer is special. It has something else. This is, the, this is uh, for our wet hop harvest ale with, uh, with Mother Hubbard's cupboard. This big vessel here is called the hop back, and you put the hops in there, and then after the boil, we will run the hot wort through those hops, and then it'll go into the whirlpool. So you're extracting a lot of hop aroma and flavor, but very little bitterness because you're, you're at a much cooler temperature. So it's, it's not a very bitter beer, but it's very hoppy beer. And those hops are green and fresh. They're the ones I just watched them harvest the day before out at Indy High Binds. They brought them in from the cooler and dumped them into the hop vac that Zach was talking about. I could smell them as soon as they entered the room. Peel them apart for you whenever you were up there. And so on the inside, there's all this powder. Looks like uh, pollen. Yeah. Uh, that's lupulin, and that's kind of the thing that we're after. What's it called again? Lupulin. Yeah. I did take take one in the car with me, and I just crushed it up and smelled it. Yeah, these are these are really nice. These are Chinook hops. Mmm. Good stuff. I found out that hops are in the same family as cannabis, and you'd believe it if you smelled these fresh hops. Hanging out at the brew house that morning, 
I was really struck with how technical the whole process is. You really gotta geek out to be a brewer. There are so many variables, so many details, times, temperatures, rates of transfer from one vessel to the next. 13.0 plus point Zach kept taking samples of the wort, testing for sugar levels. Typically our 1200 sample, our target gravity and our 1200 sample will be basically the same number. If that's the case, we know we'll add about another 200 gallons of wort to the kettle and we'll, we'll be in the ballpark. I was sufficiently impressed. The moment when the wort started to run through the bin of fresh hops, it was pretty exciting. I could tell this wasn't an everyday thing for the brewers. At this point, Zach is working with another brewer, Matt Wisely. Matt was down with the hops while Zach opened the kettle valve up on the catwalk. The scent of the hops came on strong at the steam, but it also changed once the hot liquid hit. How would you describe that uh, aroma? Hoppy. <laughs> so hops have a lot of the same aroma compounds that are in all sorts of different plants, just in different combinations. Uh, and so these are very piney and kind of citrusy. And the, the flavor and aroma changes uh, depending upon what stage you use the hops in the beer. So if you infuse a certain flavor into the hot wort, and then it goes through a fermentation, the yeast transform a lot of those flavors into different sorts of flavors. So you never know really what you're gonna get out of a specific hop until you use it in a beer. But using these fresh like this is different. You're pulling out different flavors. Yeah, you're getting something different. There's debate upon whether it's better or worse, but it's certainly, it's not, it's not the same. Because the, the uh, technology that they use to make pelletized, dried and pelletized hops now. Just gives you a really nice product that's that's very efficient in extracting all the good stuff out of there. So uh, almost everybody's using, using pelletized hops. It's just a, an easier form and you get more out of them. This is definitely much harder to work with, but these are as fresh as you can possibly get, really less than 24 hours from being harvested off the vine. As they stirred the mixture with the long-handled paddles, steam rising from the vat, the hops went from brilliant green to a dull, sandy color. I started to get really curious about what this beer was going to taste like. So that's pretty much it for that. It's going to be transferring in there for like 45 minutes, and then uh, everything else is kind of behind closed doors, if you will. It's, uh, there's not much else to see. It's all, all in, the, in the tank. So you stirred it in there for a few minutes, but it's basically running out now. Yeah, it's, it's moving into the Whirlpool tank where it'll spin it around to separate the solids from the liquid and then we can uh, send it off through the chiller and into the cellar. So that's it. All right. Well, yeah. thank you. Yeah, the name of this special wet hopped beer is Mother's Harvest in honor of Mother Hubbard's cupboard and their shared 20th birthday. I finally got to sample the beer at a dine and donate event out at Upland's 11th Street location. When I ordered it, our server wanted to tell me about the hop farm and the special process. I let him talk, but I was certain I knew more about this beer than he did. When the beer arrived, I noticed it lived up to Charlie's hazy description. It was served in the smaller tulip-style glass rather than a pint tumbler, and it was pretty cloudy. I took a sip. First impression, super hoppy. It tasted just like those fresh hops smelled. A few sips in, and I got it. I got what he meant when he said juicy. The mouthfeel. 
it really felt like I was drinking juice. Grapefruit juice, in fact. Fruity, citrusy, with a hint of bitter, like grapefruit is bitter. And yes, it was drinkable. A little too drinkable, perhaps. I felt like I could easily enjoy a few of these without even noticing. I'm still no connoisseur. Not by any means. But I tasted it. I tasted the juiciness and I tasted the hops. Knowing a little of the story behind the beer, visiting the farm, witnessing the process, it changed how I tasted the finished product. Makes sense, I guess. The whole know your farmer, getting connected to where your food comes from. It applies to beer too. To see some photos from Indy Highbinds and Uplands Brewhouse, check out our website, eartheats.org. That story stands out in my memory from the five years I've been with Earth Eats. I love it because it follows the thread from farm to table. In this case, from hop spine to tasting room. And I learned something about a particular ingredient, how it's grown, and the craft brewing process. It's also a story about community. A local brewery partners with a local food pantry for a fundraiser event. Now it's time for you to partner with us for our Fall Fun Drive. You can support the show and everything we do here at WFIU by making your pledge of support now. Call 800-662-3311 or go to WFIU.org donate. And thank you. That's it for our show. I hope you enjoyed our trip down memory lane with Earth Eats founder Annie Corrigan, Louise Briggs and her persimmon tree, everyone at Indy Highbinds and Upland Brewing, and Eric Shedler at Muddy Fork Bakery. Produced and edited by Kate Young, with help from Aobon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Daniela Richardson, Peyton Whaley, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Thank mm-hmm. you.